Our New Testament lesson this morning comes from Ephesians, I mean, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like the others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God does not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other, and we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all and hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. We're looking at both the Isaiah passage that we read earlier and this passage from 1 Thessalonians uh, this morning as we uh, live in this time of Advent, a uh, time of arrival, and we, when we celebrate the arrival of the Messiah as a baby placed into a manger, but we also anticipate the arrival of Jesus Christ as he comes again to establish his kingdom. So, when we look at this passage from Isaiah, we see that the prophet is saying, the, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. The commentators write about who was saying this. The prophet was, was the prophet saying this about himself? Was the prophet saying this about the people of Israel? Was the prophet saying this about someone else? And then, of course, in Luke 4, Jesus claims this passage as his own and says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. This is the text from which he preaches his first, uh, at least his first recorded sermon in Scripture. So we know that he is claiming this because he says, this today has been fulfilled in your hearing. But I believe that the answer to who is this about 
is more of an and than an only. In other words, it is written about the people of Israel who were called to be a light to the Gentiles. It is written about the prophets who were called to share God's good news with the people. Definitely written about Jesus Christ, and I believe that it is written about Christ's church because what we are called to do is, as Jesus was sent from God to declare God's kingdom, to declare God's reign, and to declare God's favor and God's judgment, we too are called to declare God's word to this world. And that word here we find includes release for the captives. Good news for the poor. And this passage is meant to, for those who really know their scriptures, meant to hearken back to um, Leviticus 25, where we read about the year of Jubilee. Now, in the Hebrew calendar, God had placed uh, every seven years, a time for slaves to be freed, a time for debts to be forgiven, and every 50th year, uh, a time for all slaves to be freed, a time for all debts to be forgiven, a time that all property goes back to its original owners. Now, there is no record that this year of Jubilee was ever actually practiced, but it is something God has given us, and, it, and what it, the picture that it gives us of, is of everything being made right, of all debts, all debts being cleared, of all pain and sorrow being erased, of everything that has trapped us being taken away. And that year of Jubilee, I believe, points us forward to a time that God will make everything right. And I think, according to um, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, it says God has placed eternity in the human heart. And I think that there is a deep longing in every human heart for something beyond what we experience here. And that, I believe, is um, a vital thing that we have to share with people around us. And there is no better time than the Christmas season because... During the Christmas season, we get in touch with that longing, do we not? We want to go back to that time of wonder and joy when as children we got to see that Santa had eaten the cookies we put out for him and had given us wonderful gifts and we get to unwrap them and there's that beautiful sense of, of joy and of wonder and of satisfaction well, until the last present's open and you didn't get what you wanted. But that's a whole other story. Because there's always Grandma and Grandpa's house a few days later. Don't forget that one. And all of the, the for lack of a better term, trappings of Christmas, the lights, the plans, the cookies, all of those things are trying to create an atmosphere, an atmosphere of wonder. And I believe that atmosphere comes from a human desire, a longing deep within us. And C.S. Lewis writes about that longing. I'm going to read a fairly long quote from him. Uh, the first few words might uh, make you stop listening, but don't. If a trans-temporal, trans-finite good, okay, 
Transtemporal means outside of our time. Transfinite means outside of our, our limited time. And, and in other words, eternal. If there's something beyond this life, if there's something beyond this existence, he says, and if that is our destiny, then any other good on which our desire fixes must be in some degree fallacious. False. I think you knew that one. Must bear at best only a symbolical relation to what will truly satisfy. And speaking of this desire for our own far-off country, we call it nostalgia and romanticism or adolescence. We don't know how to describe it or find it because it is outside our direct experience. Wordsworth expedient was to identify it with certain moments in his own past. But all this is a cheat. If Wordsworth had gone back to those moments in the past, he would have found not the thing itself, but only the reminder of it. What he remembered would turn out to be itself a remembering. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only a scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. You and I have need of the strongest spell that can be found to wake us up from the evil enchantment of worldliness, which has been laid upon us for nearly a 100 years, writing about 60 years ago. So now 160 years. He writes almost... Our whole education has been directed to silencing this shy, persistent inner voice. Almost all our modern philosophies have been devised to convince us that the good of humanity is to be found on this earth. And if it's not found now, we can make it happen, is the message of the world around us. Yet, we remain conscious of a, des conscious of a desire which no natural happiness will satisfy. But there is, is there any reason to suppose that reality offers any satisfaction to it? Does the fact that we can become hungry prove that we can have bread? He says no. But being hungry proves that bread exists. Because we are made in such a way that we have longing for something that exists. And then he goes on to say, and this longing in our hearts that nothing in this world satisfies, although we try, although we think maybe this is it, maybe this Christmas we can create such a perfect Christmas that all that longing will be addressed. Lewis says that longing points beyond that longing points beyond what you can create. That longing points beyond anything in this world. But just like hunger implies the existence of food, that longing implies the existence of God's kingdom, implies the existence of a reality in which all things will be made right, a reality in which we will experience joy 
joy beyond anything we can experience now. And that's what the Isaiah passage is pointing us to. To the poor, there will come a day when you are no longer poor. To those who struggle, there will come a day when you no longer struggle. To those who grieve, there will come a day when you will no longer grieve. And yet, so often we get so caught up in the things of this world that we fail to look beyond. We keep trying to make the things of this world fulfill that longing. We try to make those things fit what we know that we need, and they cannot bear up under the weight of those expectations because those expectations, that longing, is only going to be fulfilled in God. So, in this life, while we long for something else, we have to remember that what we truly want is God's kingdom. Neil Planting, uh, in Christian Century a number of years ago, wrote, when life is good, our prayers for the kingdom get a little faint. When our kingdom has had a good year, we aren't necessarily looking for God's kingdom. When life is good, redemption doesn't sound so good. So for those whose lives are going well, I want to caution you. Number one, there's no guarantee that will continue. And number two, as good as it is, is not as good as it gets. Don't let yourself get caught up in the false promises of what goodness you're experiencing now because it is only a glimpse of the glory of God. And for those who are struggling, I refer to Neil Planning, his quote was from December 14th, just a few years ago, and this quote from a letter written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer right before the end of World War II on December 13th. A letter to his fiancée. Dearest Maria, let us celebrate Christmas. Don't entertain any awful imaginings of me and my cell, but remember that Christ too frequents prisons and that he will not pass me by. Now, if you know anything about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you know that he was executed, killed by the Nazis just days before the end of that war. And if we measure only by this world, we might say, well, a lot of good that did him. He had hope in Christ, but what, what hope was that? But remember, our hope in Christ is beyond this life. And while after he was executed, he enjoys now the fullness of the promise of God. While he was still alive, he still enjoyed the presence of God even in the face of potential death, and it ended up for him imminent death because he knew the promises of God. Now, those who are satisfied and content in their life now and might say, well, I hear this word about 
the coming of the kingdom, but I'm not really ready, I'm not really interested in that. And others who are grieving, who, are, who have no hope may say, bring it on. Let me experience that because I am so tired of the grief of this life. And so Paul to the Thessalonians writes, we do not know the time or the date, but we do know that the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And as we said last week, when you don't expect it, but you can expect it. And he goes on to say, you are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. And what he is saying is anticipate it. Make your life revolve around this promise of God's eternal kingdom, the return of Christ, the establishment of the new heaven and the new earth. Make that your hope and not just your hope, but also your calling. Because there are people who need to know this hope. People who need to be taken out of their self-satisfaction or the satisfaction they get from the, the trappings of this life and, and directed, redirected toward that eternal hope. And there are people who need to be promised, who need the promise of new life, of, of God's glory of the wealth of the kingdom of God revealed to them. And it is our duty as those who have been sent by God into this world to proclaim release to the captives, to pro proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim the glory of God's kingdom to this world. So Paul goes on, and there's so much in here. I'm not going to cover it all, but I just want to cover the last few verses, 16 um, through 21 or 22. Rejoice always. Rejoice always. What, what is he trying to say? He's trying to say rejoice always. And that's not possible, is it, if we only look at the things of this world? But if we know the promise of glory, if we know the promise of release from everything that has trapped us, if we know that this underlying grief that can sort of be found just by scratching the surface in most of our lives, is going to be answered with glory, then we can rejoice always. Pray continually. Now, if you, here, here's a, a helpful hint for that one. If you consider prayer an activity that you set aside other activities for and you enter into prayer and you take this time for prayer at, at the, so that you're not doing anything else, then praying continually seems rather impossible, does it not? So Paul must not mean that. What he means is having an attitude of prayer continually. In other words, when whatever circumstance you're going through, whatever responsibility you're undertaking to fulfill, be aware of God. Live in a constant sense of communication with God because he is the fulfillment. He is the goal. 
Give thanks in all circumstances, he says. Folks, this does not say give thanks for all circumstances. For Jesus Christ himself prayed, I mean cried at the death of Lazarus. He did not, he was not thankful for the hurts and pains of this world, but he was thankful within them because of the glory that is promised to us, because of our trust that God is good and is guiding us through this life, this life in which there is no promise of no problem. There is no promise of ease. But there is a promise beyond this life. And for that, we give thanks. Do not quench the spirit, he says. I think this is a problem for many within the church and for many churches. We um, read in Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians where the, they had gotten so obsessed with the spirit, not just the Holy Spirit, but the the outworkings of the Holy Spirit, the, the wonder and the different kind of things the Holy Spirit does. And they got so into that, they got sidetracked. But here, he's writing to a church that has so buttoned down, so controlled, so wrapped up in their own plans and purposes that they have lost the Holy Spirit. They fail to acknowledge that it is God who is at work within them. One writer said, being missional then is to challenge all form of cultural Christianity that would make church an end in itself, a community of the saved devoted to maintaining a building, a set of programs, and a fellowship of the like-minded. All of those things are important, but they point us beyond those things into our mission as those who are called to preach good news. And then Paul ends this passage in the most comforting way. He says, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do this. In other words, all of this call upon our lives to be people of the light in a land filled with darkness all of this call upon our lives to figure out a way to help people understand this eternal truth, these eternal promises, we are not called to accomplish on our own. But God is at work. We must allow the Holy Spirit to work within us. We must open ourselves to what God is calling us to do. And in doing that, trust that God is at work, that God will equip us for whatever task it is that God calls us to. That's why I love to say those words at the end of almost every worship service. Because we are reminded, it's not about me. It's about God working through me. It's not about now. It's about how God wants the promise of God's eternity to impact now. And our call as those who follow Christ, those who 
are aware of these promises is to trust them, to know them, to allow them to speak to our hearts, and to then declare them to a world in great need.